motivating our way in here. Everybody um, uh, finding your seat. We'll get started in, in about 30 seconds, 45 seconds, something like that. Okay, um, our speaker will be in here in a minute, but uh, while we're uh, waiting for him for just a second, let me remind you of a couple of things. Again, we'll have a, a Q&A time at the end, end of the session. You'll find this pretty interesting. Also about his uh, uh, DNA company, and if you're local, you're here in Houston, you can go there and have your uh, uh, take a sample of your DNA and have it uh, tested, evaluated, examined, determine whatever there is to determine about about your your DNA. I know some of you don't want to know anything about your DNA because you know you've got you know reprobates and thieves and murderers and whatever in, in the background. But Dan said that that you can receive forgiveness. I didn't mention which Dan. <laughs> okay, and um, uh, just a, a note. Uh, yes, did somebody say my name? Okay, um, just a couple of notes about the schedule the rest of the day. Uh, we will, when we finish with this break at uh, 11.30ish, we break for lunch, and that lunch break is two hours long. Now, one of the things we started doing a number of years ago is something we did at Dallas Seminary when I was a student. We called them brown bag lunches. And back in the, those days, people knew what a brown bag was. You know, you take your lunch in a brown paper bag. And most students went to seminary. They had their lunch in a brown paper bag. And in Lamb Auditorium was a place where we, we they didn't really have a cafeteria or student center at that time. And we would all just go sit in there and study and, and eat, eat, our, uh, uh, eat our lunch. And then uh, usually once every month or then twice a month or so, they would have a speaker come in and speak and talk about something uh, during the lunch break while we were eating. And so those were brown bag lunches. And so we sort of have something like that go, that goes on. And today we're going to have um, Jerry Greenspan, who is the political Southwest Regional Political Director for APAC. He's going to talk a little bit about APAC. Uh, Bob Guerra, uh, who's here, who's the chairman of the board for uh, uh, Dean Bible Ministries, has spent a lot of time talking to Jerry. He'll agree with me. This guy's young. I think Jerry's, what, 30, 31? And he know, he's forgotten more about what goes on in politics than all of us combined will ever know, including Wayne House. Okay, he because that's his job. I mean, he knows every congressman that stayed in, in the Southwest region, what their voting record is, what they've done, their their strengths, their weaknesses, their assistance. He knows everything. I mean, he's just unbelievable, uh, the wealth and breadth and depth uh, uh, of his knowledge. So about twelve fifteen. So you got about forty five minutes to eat. And then about 12.15, 12.20, Jerry will be here. Jerry will give a presentation on APAC that will last until about 1. And then we'll resume the afternoon session at 1.30. And Wayne will continue to talk about uh, interpretation. 
There'll be a brief break then at 1245, and then the final presentation of the afternoon will be David Roseland's on Scottish common sense philosophy and inerrancy. Now, if you've never really drilled down in depth on the issues and the debates that go on over this, that, as I've said a couple of times, that may not mean much to you and say, well, I, I can go home, I need a nap at that time. This is one of the most important issues that has consistently brought up. And uh, very few people have ever done the kind of spade work David has done historically to demonstrate where the fallacies are in this argument that's brought against us. So that's that's a great – I saw Bennett starting to come in. Where is – okay. He'll be here in just a minute. Okay. I need uh, – hence, you got a comedy routine? No, your mouth's full. Okay. <laughs> One of the few times I've ever ever seen him quiet. Okay, anybody have any questions? There he is. Okay, Bennett's coming up. Bennett Greenspan. I first met Bennett and got to know him uh, probably about, when was that, seven, seven, eight years ago. I went to my first APAC National Policy Conference, and one of the purposes of policy conference is to lobby your representatives, your members of Congress, for whatever the issue of the day is in reference to some issue, some issue related to uh, the United States uh, and Israel. And so um, I was, first time ever there, I was teamed up with a more seasoned, <laughs> experienced lobbyist, and that was Bennett. And so he you know, brought me under, my wing, under his wing to teach me a little bit about lobbying and how to talk to congressmen, people in Congress and everything, and that was, that was uh, really great. And that was the beginning uh, of, our, uh, of our friendship. Uh, he has a uh, company here that's called Family Tree DNA, and it is the largest DNA lab in the country, right? Close. Close. Okay, he's. I, I've been told that by several people, so he's being modest. But he is also has done a tremendous amount of research on this uh, entire issue related to uh, uh, Jewish DNA and some of the claims that are made uh, against uh, the legitimacy of modern Jews, especially Ashkenazi Jews. And I even know of one Dallas seminary professor, just to kind of bring it home, who's recently answered the question to two different people that I know of that he does not believe that Ashkenazi Jews, that's what Eastern European background Jews, are genetically related to the Israelites of the Bible. And for those of us this is absurd that somebody at Dallas Seminary would take that position, okay? And we're going to find out. He's going to help answer that. For those of you who've never heard of the Khazar theory, there's a lot of people here. If you've ever read the book Anti-Semitism by uh, Pastor Theme, he has a section in there on the Khazar theory and what's wrong with it. Tommy Ice's new book, The Case for Christian Zionism, has a whole chapter on it. And uh, Bennett's read it and said he's one of the few Christians who gets it and gets it right. So that's a recommendation on that. So with that, I'm going to let uh, Bennett come up and uh, give us his presentation. Thank you, Robbie. Uh, is this mic working? Can you all hear me in the back? Okay, very good. Uh, my name is Bennett Greenspan. I've been a genealogist since I was a boy, and in 1999, after I had sold my photographic supply company, if you remember such a thing, to a publicly traded firm, um, 
I, I realized that selling my business to someone else and having them manage me was not my idea of a good time. And so I left. And in effect, I was at home. I was a good house husband, so to speak. Uh, but what my wife says is that I was getting in her way. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. My wife came home one day and um, I said, where you been? And she said, I've been to the grocery store. And I said, so you must have groceries in the car. Let me get them. I did. And I brought them into the house and I took out the groceries and I put them on the counter. And I said, dear, would you like me to put these away? And she said, sure. And so I opened up the cupboard and I saw the whole peeled tomatoes on the top shelf, saw the spaghetti sauce on the next shelf. The tomato paste was somewhere else, but on a different shelf. And I said, dear, I said, would you like me to reorganize your cupboard? At which point my wife said to me, in only the way a loving, adorning wife can, she said, you need to pick up your genealogy or you need to pick up golf, but you need to get out of my kitchen. <laughs> and, so, and so I did. Um, I then researched that genealogical line, the only line in my family of my eight great-grandparents that I had never looked at, which was the Nitz, N-I-T-Z, lineage. I found all the Nitz relatives, and then I entered that name into a database in this new... Um, uh, <laughs> this new uh, opportunity, shall we say, called the Internet. And so in 1999, I found someone who claimed to come from the same ancestral village as my great-great-grandfather came from. Two of the names in their family began with the same letter, which is uh, common among, it's a Jewish naming pattern to name after the deceased. So two of their names were the same as two of our names, except they lived in Argentina, and we lived here in America. And try as I might to prove that they were related to each other, I was unable to do so. Then I was out one night in August of 1999 walking our dog here in Houston, Texas, late at night when the temperature had gone down, and I had that eureka moment. I realized that there had been actually not one, but two studies that had used the male-inherited Y chromosome to prove lineage. One was the study in 1997 of the Kohanim, those that believe that they are descended from Aaron, the brother of Moses. That's something that's passed down in Judaism from father to son and son to grandson, so a direct paternal line. There was also a study in 1998 on the Jefferson family that purported to show that an American president, Thomas Jefferson, had had at least one child with his deceased wife's half-sister, who was known as Sally Hemings. And I thought to myself, if they were able to use DNA to prove a relationship, why can't I use DNA to prove a relationship? And so the next morning I got up and I called uh, a professor at his house in Arizona from the University of Arizona who had done the Kohanim study, and I asked him really just one question will you do a DNA test on my cousin in California and this fellow out in Argentina who thinks, well, I think might be related to us. And he said, no, we don't do those kind of testings for individuals. We only do that for anthropological purposes. I said, that's fine. All I want to know is where I can go and get such a test. So who offers such a test? And he said, I don't believe that anyone is offering a test like this anywhere in the world. I was a little bit down on that, and I didn't say anything, which for those of you that know me is an uncommon moment. And 
he took advantage of that quiet and said, you know, someone should start a company like this because I get phone calls from crazy genealogists like you all the time. And that's all I needed to hear. Uh, within a couple months, I had actually started that company. Uh, this was the company telephone. Um, uh, it was, so to speak, a stealth business. Anywhere I went and I had my phone, I was uh, open for business. And I started getting phone calls after I built this website. And that led me to a tremendous opportunity to discover and rediscover. For example, when I was a kid growing up, I had heard about the Khazar theory. The Khazars, which were a kingdom basically in what today would be considered the Ukraine from the Caspian Sea to the Black Sea all the way north to Kiev. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a king there who had, according to lore, converted to Judaism in the 8th century. And that kingdom, at least the rulers, were purported to have been uh, Jewish for a couple of centuries until that empire was destroyed by the Rus, by the Russian Empire in the 10 hundreds. And then the Khazars seemed to disappear from history. Uh, and that's kind of where our story picks up today. What are we going to be talking about? Well, first thing we're going to talk about is I'm going to give you a very, very, very short primer on what we would refer to as anthrogenetics. We're going to talk about historians' claims, which seem to be, in my opinion, I'll let you make your own decisions, at odds with genetics. Uh, we're going to talk about who the Jews are on a genetic level and can molecular biology answer and historically non-provable argument. So essentially, uh, we have 23 pairs of chromosomes in each of us. Those of us that are, uh, well, okay, so let me just show you here. These chromosomes, and including these four here, are known as autosomes. Autosomes recombine in every generation. So each of you has half of your autosomal DNA from your mother and half of your autosomal DNA from your father. That makes you a cornucopia of your four grandparents or your eight great-grandparents. If they were from similar ethnic backgrounds, then you will have a majority or a plurality of those ethnic backgrounds. If you have ancestry that's Irish and ancestry that's French, you're likely to show most of your DNA to be typical of people that we found in Ireland and people typically found in France. However, we cannot ignore migrations over the last 1,000 or 1,500 years. And so that means that literally everyone who comes from uh, northern continental Europe or the British Isles has some Scandinavian, because we all remember about 1,500 years ago, uh, the Vikings started leaving Scandinavia, and wherever they went, those Vikings were smart enough to take up with the local ladies, and they passed their DNA on to their children in that fashion. So we have 22 pairs of autosomal DNA, and we also have one pair of sex chromosomes. Down here, uh, everyone in the room... Uh, Everyone in the room has one X because the X comes from the mother 
all the men in the room have a Y chromosome as well, which comes from the father. And ultimately, the only thing that it appears that the Y chromosome provides to men, uh, since half the population seems to live just fine without a Y chromosome, are two items that I want you all to remember. Number one, it's the Sunday sports gene. And, and, and number two, it's the clicker gene, and we all know that. So, anthropology and genealogy, we have three different types of DNA that we're able to interrogate for historical and anthropological purposes. The Y chromosome, which makes men men, is passed down from my father to me and from me to my son, and hopefully, Olivai, um, from my son to my grandson one day. The mitochondria is DNA which is contained in the egg. So a woman has the mitochondria. She passes the mitochondria on to her children. So every woman passes her female inherited mitochondria on to all of her children, boys and girls. And then the girls pass it on to the next generation. The autosomal or recombinant DNA I had mentioned earlier. And everyone obviously has those 22 chromosomes uh, the autosomes which recombine, we use those to show genealogical relationships. We can also use that to show what your DNA overall looks like, what percentage of your DNA is Scandinavian versus Northwestern European versus Spanish versus North African, for example. So again, that female DNA comes from my great-great-grandmother, and it goes down this direct line. The Y chromosome starts here with my great-great-grandfather is passed here, passed here, passed here. And when I started this business in 1999, you couldn't interrogate any of the DNA from any of those other relatives listed in white, which is why I needed to convince a reluctant cousin of mine in California to do a DNA test on himself to see if he would match with that fellow in Argentina who we thought might be related, but we didn't have something that genealogists consider sacrosanct. We didn't have a piece of paper as evidence. So now I'm going to talk to you about two terms, and then we're going to get into some fun stuff. The two terms are SNP, stands for single nucleotide polymorphism. That can help us identify people that are related to you thousands of years ago. We can look at something called an STR, a short tandem repeat, which allows us to identify people who are related to you a hundred or a few hundreds of years ago. And so by using both the SNPs, the single nucleotide changes or polymorphisms and using the short tandem repeats, we can show who is related to you closely and which branch of the tree of mankind, of Homo sapien, you actually descend from. This is what that tree looks like. So here is the first anatomical man who had, in effect, two sons. One led to branch A and one led to a branch which became B and then C, D, and E. These are all African branches with the exception of C, which migrated out of Africa thousands of years ago and now is most commonly found in China. A D, by the way, also left Africa and it's found, this is interesting, in Japan 
and the mountains of Tibet. So there is some geographical specificity to each of these branches, and we'll talk about some of that specificity in just a few minutes. Now we're going to talk about a historian's claims which are at odds with genetics. This is the infamous Arthur Kostler's book. He had, shall we say, a, a novel and a noble idea when he said that Eastern European Jews are the descendants of the Khazars. What he said is if he can show that Eastern European Jews are not descended from the Judeans of antiquity, but are all descendants from this converted Turkic tribe that lived north of the Black Sea, he would be able to prove that Eastern European Jews were not Semites and therefore anti-Semitism in his mind would go away. So that was kind of a, a simplistic view I would, I would submit to you. Um, it doesn't seem like anti-Semitism has gone down even though uh, this theory has been spread kind of far and wide. Uh, but he had his theory. There was no DNA at the time to prove him right or to prove him wrong. Uh, then about, that was in the mid-70s. Then about eight years ago, I met a fellow named Iran El-Hayak. Iran El-Hayak was at that time working as a population geneticist for a company that I was doing the DNA testing for. And so we struck up a relationship of sorts. And one day he pulled me to the side and told me that he believed that this Khazar theory was absolutely true, that he, as a original plant geneticist, had done some DNA work on Eastern European Jewish populations that had been collected by two rather famous professors in the space. And he contended that they had lied and omitted data so that they were able to make the data fit their conclusion. And then I watched him uh, within less than 10 minutes do exactly the same thing he was criticizing those individuals about. And so try as I might to show the Y chromosome of Eastern European Jews and Spanish Jews to him, it was like talking to a wall uh, I quickly became convinced that uh, Dr. El-Hayak had an agenda. Agendas are dangerous in science. You're supposed to collect data and then, uh, and then look at the data and come to conclusions. He came to a conclusion and then looked at data that would support his previously known conclusion. This is bad science. At any rate, one of the ways that you know that it's bad is when you find anti-Semites um, uh, either a guy like this Tex Mar or on the American Nazi uh, Party website actually promoting the theories and ideas of, of this uh, uh, El Hayak. Here you can see something where it says DNA unearthed stunning secret Jews are Khazars. And I have read what they've written and you I don't think a pretzel can be twisted any more than, than these guys have twisted, you know, actual facts. Uh, here's a picture of, uh, of Dr. El Hayak, who seems to be, you know, proud to be uh, quoted by these guys. I would submit that, that he, in fact, has a particular agenda. And for the last four or five years, he's been running around 
quoted by newspapers and and publishing articles in non-peer-reviewed journals because every time he tries to publish in a peer-reviewed journal, it doesn't seem to go very well for him. Uh, Now there's a third individual who is also uh, spouting this Jews are Khazars theory. He is the art historian Shlomo Sand, now from Tel Aviv University. He wrote two rather blasphemous books in the last decade, one called The Invention of the Jewish People, one called The Invention of the Land of Israel. And so after seeing all this, it seemed that I, as the president of Family Tree DNA, was in a unique position because I have in our database thousands of people who we know are of Jewish ancestry. And I said, why don't I start pulling that data together and let's just take a look at it. And so what I did is I started pulling together those thousands of individuals. I spent a huge amount of time making sure that I would find a single male line so I would get my percentages right rather than, so I wouldn't count myself, my dad, and my son because we're three men all with the same Y chromosome. So I would pair out people with the same last name who matched. What I was looking for is how many unique individuals we likely have in our database who have known Jewish ancestry that is of Eastern European Jewish descent. And so I did that. Then I went and I did exactly the same thing with the Spanish Jews, with the Jews that um, that didn't leave uh, the land of Judea and Samaria. They didn't leave there to go to uh, to go to Eastern Europe, but somehow they had ended up in Spain, which was actually an event which took place probably as long ago as as the destruction of Carthage, so maybe 2,200 years ago. Uh, So I looked at those folks, and then I reached out to the University of Arizona to my, uh, my friend and professor over there for him to provide me some other populations data. So let's take a look at this. Shlomo Sands has made this rather amazing statement. I would like to read it to you. It says, there is no racial or ethnic basis for being Jewish any more than there is for being Christian or Muslim. And the great majority of those who consider themselves Jewish uh, are descendants of converts from Central Asia, Eastern Europe, and North Africa, not from ancient Hebrews mythically expelled from the Holy Land by the Romans, and hence are in no sense ethnic Semites of Near Eastern origin or ethnic anything else. Wow. So I, I read this thing, and then I read it again, and then I read it again, and you know, I, just, I just wanted to try to make sense of this. And so, in effect, I've divided my answers or the information that, that genetics can provide into three points. I've listed them here, uh, A, B, and C. So let's take a look. There is no racial or ethnic basis for being Jewish any more than there is for being Christian or Muslim. Sand seems to firmly reject the idea of any historical connection or any genetic overlap between Jews from different countries and different backgrounds. His argument claims that Jews who are Sephardic and Jews who are Eastern European Ashkenazi share or would share nothing but a false belief that there must be a genetic link between these historically separated groups. 
that would seem to extend to groups around the world who are no longer Jewish today, but who claim to have Jewish ancestry. So let's look at a few real-world examples. This is the story of one of our earlier customers in 2001. Her name was Berta Sanchez. She was born in Spain within a Catholic family, but they had, after 21 generations, they had an oral tradition that they were of Spanish-Jewish origin. She was unable to document this using you know, traditional, conventional paper trail genealogy, so she turned to DNA to try to solve her mystery. These show the results. Let me go back here for a second. So I got the results 2001. We had a very small database at the time. I compared her to our entire database. She matched no one in our database at all. She didn't match anyone Jewish in our database. She didn't match anyone non-Jewish in our database. So I opened a private, unpublished database from a partner of mine, whose name is Dr. Darone Bahar. Uh, he had collections of Jewish and non-Jewish samples from all the countries that touched the Mediterranean. And so when I looked in the results, Berta didn't match anyone who was from those countries who had a non-Jewish origin. However, she matched two people who came from Algeria, one person who came from Bulgaria, and five people who came from Turkey, all people living in Israel today that Dr. Bahar had collected, and this was who Berta matched. And so it was pretty clear that she had connections to Spanish Jews, families who had left Spain after the Inquisition, after 500 years, although to listen to Sands, this is just poppycock. Now, there's another fellow. Who, who knows of the island of Mallorca in the, in the uh, Atlantic? So there's an island in Mallorca, and there's a group of people on that island who are known as the Choetas. The Choeta, Choeta means rib. These people were forcibly converted to Catholicism in the 1400s. And to prove to their neighbors that they were Catholic, they stood in the doorposts of their house and chewed on pork ribs. They have retained their geographical specificity in the island. In other words, there was a little quarter that those Jews used to live in. And now as Catholics, they live in the same quarter. They don't marry outside of their population, uh, which makes it even more interesting. And they even have, by and large, retained their ancient, uh, their ancient vocations where many of them are goldsmiths or silversmiths. So they're in the jewelry business. So... I got an email from a fellow who wanted to know if we could show that he had Jewish ancestry. And we tested him. Uh, here's the email that he wrote. He said, unfortunately, since the Inquisition, it was too dangerous to be a Jew in Mallorca, and no one would talk about the subject. The conversions were so enforced, and for so many years that Chouettes had to show that they were very religious uh, in the Christian faith, and even though they were not accepted in society until even this day. So I've learned uh, from Judaism 
So what I've learned from Judaism is what I've studied on my own. I see all this response, this heritage as a responsibility to do something to go back to my roots. I'm not married yet, and really it would be great if I could find a Jewish wife, he says. In that way, Judaism would be important again in my family, and my kids would be Jewish. All back to the way it was. So we tested this individual. His, his results came out not what Dr. Sands would imagine because he actually showed matches again like Berta to the, to the Jewish community from around the world. In 2014, after a couple more emails, he writes me, and when I asked him, have you done a family tree? He says, yes, I have my family tree back to the 1500s, and all my ancestors on my mother's side have the combination of the 15 Chuetan surnames. As you know, there was a lot of endogamy or marriage within, uh, as they did not marry with people other than those from a non-Jewish background. My grandmother, who was a Chueta from both sides, mother and father, was the first to marry a non-Chuetan since the forced conversions of the 1400s. If you see the matches in her DNA, it looks like a synagogue directory. So... <laughs> So this is what the results actually look like. Now, right here, this is the branch of the tree. This R0A2 is a Middle Eastern Semitic branch of the tree of mankind found among Jews and found among Arabs. So it is clearly not Spanish in origin. It is Middle Eastern in origin. If you look at the names that this fellow matches, you have uh, Polantowski, Shore, Pierce, Lussel, Gelfand. These are all Eastern European Jewish names. So here we have someone who claims to be from a population that was forced to convert in the 1400s whose matches are to Eastern European Jews. If we had a large enough Spanish Jewish database, he would likely have matches there as well. But it clearly shows that even though we have a couple thousand miles of geography and a couple thousand years of history, there is a genetic connection or a genetic overlap between Jewish populations, the, this Jewish population from someone from Spain and Jewish populations from that quote-unquote Khazarian Empire, Eastern Europe. All fuel for the fire that it's, uh, that it's myth or theory and not, and not actually real. So these actually show the countries where we found matches for this particular individual. And you'll see he has matches in Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, typical Eastern European places where Iran El Hayak, uh, Arthur Kosler, and Professor Sands say that the DNA should be typical of Eastern Europeans and not typical of Semites from the Middle East. This is kind of an interesting one. I have this fellow named Guillermo Carrasco, obviously not of Eastern European uh, origin with a name like that. His family left Spain about 100 years ago. They moved to Chile, and about 50 years ago, he moved to the United States. He did a DNA test with us, and he has this one match to a guy who we know is of Spanish-Jewish origin, but all of his other matches are to people of Eastern European Jewish origins. And so uh, 
that was kind of a surprise. That was certainly a surprise to him. This shows you the countries where his matches were found. We found a couple here in, uh, in, in the New World of all of Hispanic origin. We found one person who still lives in Spain with that same DNA signature. And then over here you find a preponderance of his matches who live in Eastern Europe. And what was so interesting about this for me personally, is his list of matches, where he matches these guys from New Mexico named Echeverria, then he matches Mr. Um, Rabinowitz, then he matches another Hispanic named Romero, then he has a Zaloff, who's Eastern European, Tenorio, who's clearly Hispanic. But if you come down here, you find that this Guillermo Carrasco has matches to a fellow named Bennett Greenspan. And so I have thought my entire life that I was the descendants of Eastern European Jews, who Professor Sands would call the Khazars, right? Uh, And I actually match this Hispanic individual. And without DNA testing, there would be no way for me to be able to determine that my ancestors' footprints had passed through Spain, Undoubtedly, when we were given this choice by the king and queen of Spain to convert or die or convert or leave, my ancestors left and their ancestors stayed, and it's likely as simple as that. For one reason or another, both families chose life, and maybe we were able to get out, and maybe they had an old great-grandmother or a wife who was, you know, who was very, very pregnant, and it was much more convenient for them to choose to stay in Spain. And we are finding these kinds of matches everywhere that the, Spain, the, that the Spanish uh, went when they left uh, when they left Spain, starting in 1492, 1493. So South America, Central America, New Mexico. I would contend that the New Mexican Jews of secret Jewish origin were the first Jews in the New World, and not um, the Jews who came from Brazil to New Amsterdam in 1654. So to review. Professor Sands said there is no racial or ethnic basis for being Jewish any more than there is for being Muslim or Christian. What can we take home from this? Well, first, how can we explain a non-Jew from a society who was forced to convert 500 years ago, according to their oral tradition, who only matches Jews and not just Spanish Jews, but Jews of Eastern Europe in addition? Does Berta's oral tradition count for nothing? How can Mr. Carrasco explain why his ancestors uh, journeyed to the center, journeyed to the ends of the earth to be far from the Spanish seat of power <clears throat> in the 15, 16, 1700s? The most polite conclusion is that Professor Sands is just wrong. Now, did 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 he have an agenda? Well, he has. Uh, If you look on his Wikipedia page, he says that he moved back from France where he was a art historian to Tel Aviv because he loved the coffee scene in Tel Aviv enough that he was willing to come back to a country that he subsequently has renounced his Judaism. I don't know where he is here, but it's not where I want to be. But again, he seems to have an agenda. I will tell you one very, very short story that Iran El Hayak told me, and then I'll move on. He told me that he was in Israel, 
and he got a phone call that said, would you please review Harry Oster's book, who was one of the two professors who had done those uh, studies that El Hayak had claimed that he had uh, used some of the data, but not all of the data. And so El Hayak was uh, asked to come and speak uh, on the radio. He was going to be speaking with Dr. Sands. And to his credit, El Hayak said, I really shouldn't go on because I haven't read Harry Oster's book. I haven't read Dr. Oster's book. And the person who was, who was calling him, who was going to be the interviewer, said, it's all right. I haven't read Harry Oster's book, and neither has Professor Sands. At which point they decided, well, since none of them have read the book, no one had a leg up, and so they could all get on Israel radio and talk about how Dr. Oster's book was wrong, but the truth is that none of the three of them had actually read the book. So, and the great majority of those who today consider themselves Jewish are descended from converts from Central Asia, Eastern Europe, and North Africa. Remember I said that the tree of mankind had geographical specificity. Well, here we go. So there are seven branches of the tree of mankind that we find Jewish populations. You have this E branch, which is found in North Africa, the G branch, which is found today primarily in the Caucasus. This I branch is found in southeastern Europe. J is found in the Fertile Crescent and the Saudi Peninsula. Q is found in Central Asia. Uh, R is found in Turkey to Kurdistan and very heavily in Europe. And T is found in Lebanon and the Fertile Crescent. And if you remember what Professor Sands had said is that Jewish populations are descendants primarily, he said, from North Africa, from uh, from uh, the Caucasus, from Southeastern Europe, and from Central Asia. So what I thought we would do is we would take a look at what the DNA of Spanish Jews look like. There's no opportunity for influence from the Khazars because these Spanish Jews were already in Spain by the first or second century of the Common Era. We should be able to look at the Spanish Jews and they should be a great proxy for what the Judeans looked like a couple of thousand years ago. And so here's what a pie chart looks like. We have that quintessential J group, which is among the Sephardic, 48% or half of Spanish Jews are from a branch of the tree that is found in the Fertile Crescent. We have this E branch, which is actually known as E1B. It is found in North Africa. The G group is found in the Caucasus. The R group is found in what I would refer to as the northern part of the Fertile Crescent. And then we have a few bit players. We have this T group found in Lebanon. We have this I group at 1%, which is actually much more common in Europe. And then we have this Q group, the so-called Central Asian group, which one might theory is Khazarian, uh, found at 2% of Spanish Jews. 
So we should be able to look at the Spanish Jewish group as a proxy for what the Jewish population from the Middle East likely look like if the Jewish population is actually from the Middle East. So the best comparison I can give you now would be to show you how similar or how different the Eastern European Jewish population looks like. And so there we go. You want to see it again? That's the Sephardic population with their outsized 48% Middle Eastern. And here's the Eastern European Jewish population, which shows the same thing, 41% J, typical of the Middle East. While the Sephardic population from North Africa was 13%, the Ashkenazi population, it was 20%. The caucus population among Sephardic Jews was 16%. It's only 10% among Ashkenazi Jews. This is something that population geneticists call either founder effect or genetic drift. In other words, if we're looking at men, and if a man uh, had nine sons and no daughters, his Y chromosome is going to be overexpressed in the next generation compared to his relative or friend who had nine daughters and didn't have any sons. And then a couple generations later, you end up with one particular family being well represented and one particular family on the Y chromosome side not being represented at all. Uh, What's interesting is that the that the R group, which is found in the Northern Fertile Crescent, is found in 18% of Spanish Jews, 18% of Ashkenazi Jews. So the T group was a couple points in each population. The I group is kind of interesting. The I group actually is 1% among Spanish Jews, but it's 4% among the Ashkenazi Jews, and that is statistically significant. My sense is that we're likely seeing among the Ashkenazi Jews the descendants of Jewish women who were raped during the Chelniki massacres in 1648-1649. And then this Q group among Ashkenazi Jews is actually at 5%, not at 2%. That's statistically significant lessened by the fact that 5% of a total population is not very much. Remember, we're looking for a smoking gun. We're looking for evidence that Kosler is right, that Sands is right, that El Hayak is right. So after these two populations look so similar, I would submit that their premise is on very shaky ground. But I thought it would be a good idea to take a look at what the Arab populations, primarily Muslim populations in the Middle East look like. If the Jews are outliers, they're not going to look very much like the existing Muslim populations today. So here's what the Muslims look like. Well, we have 44%, so they're right in between the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi. 9% of the Middle Easterners have that North African ancestry. 10% of the Middle Easterners have that Caucasus ancestry. 21, this is compared to 18. The T group is 2 or 3% in each population. Interestingly, that Central Asia that... Uh, that Professor Sands has picked on in his in his uh, little diatribe. It's found at 2% in 
in the entire Middle East. It's found at 2% in the Spanish Jewish population. It is found at 5% in the Ashkenazi population. And I don't think that any historian will tell you that there is zero influence from the royal family of the Khazars, who it appears converted into Judaism, but there is no evidence whatsoever for an in mass conversion because if we did, the Jewish population, Spanish and uh, and particularly Ashkenazi populations, would look much more like the current Ukrainian population. So here's a comparison after you see these three. Here's a comparison to the Ukrainians today. Whereas every population in the Middle East is at minimum 40% J or 40% Middle Eastern, the Ukrainians are 8%. Whereas this R group was 18, 21% among indigenous populations to the Middle East, the Ukrainians are double that. Jewish populations and even Arab populations were between 1% and 4% in this group called I. The Ukrainians are 36%. So when you look at the genetics, it's very, very clear that Jews, whether it's Eastern European Jews or whether it's Spanish Jews, are a Middle Eastern population. Like it or not, those are the facts. So now, after a recognition of this, I would say the ultimate political question. Is it time for Israel to apply for membership in the Arab League? There are Christian Arabs. There were Jewish Arabs who came from those Arabian countries, except I would submit to you that because my Y chromosome is a J and is Semitic, that I am a descendant of an Arab tribe as well. And the majority of people living in the Middle East today are Muslim Arabs. What that tells me is that Jews are primarily an Arabian people, of which there are three varieties, as I said, Christian Arabs, Jewish Arabs, and Muslim Arabs. And so in the event that Israel does make this application to join the Arab League, not the Organization of Islamic States, the Arab League, I wanted to be prepared, and so I am. <laughs> now, I, I, I hasten to say that, that you will always be able to tell the Jewish Arabs, because we'll be the ones wearing the Tommy Bahama shirts. <laughs> Not from ancient Hebrews, mythically, mythically, mythically expelled from the Holy Land by the Romans and hence are in no sense Semites of Near Eastern origin or ethnic anything else, he says. So finally, we have some historical evidence, or was this manufactured in an antique shop as well? A few years ago, I went to Rome, and I made the point of taking a picture of the Arch of Titus. The Arch of Titus depicts the, the Judean slaves being brought to Rome, uh, the Senate of Rome, and the people of Rome uh, to pay tribute uh, to Titus built this uh, built this arch which showed the subjugated um, Judean slaves coming to Rome where ultimately they were sold off as slaves uh, 
apparently when I hear the word mythical and then I see this Arch of Titus, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that uh, that Professor Sands is now trying to take, you know, his version of reality and he's just spewing. Because we all know that the Arch of Titus is there. Now you've seen the genetics and you know that the Eastern European Jews are in effect no different than the Spanish Jews, and you've seen overlap between Jewish populations, whether it's of Spanish origin or Eastern European or uh, Jewish origin, stretching back 2,000 years. Uh, I think that what we've talked about can be described by this. Robert Coase, who was a 1991 Nobel Prize winner, said, if you torture data long enough, it will confess. And so Professor El Hayak has acted as a torturer of the data because he's actually looked at the data. Sands has never looked at the data, has never added uh, in either of his books anything about the genetic data, even though this genetic data was out after he began publishing. And so this is a case, in my opinion, of people who have an agenda number one, and people who are willing to torture the data enough to make it say what they want it to say. And this is a very, very dangerous thing for people who believe in honest discourse. And all it takes is a swab. Uh, we do what's called a buckle scraping, where you scrape the inside of your mouth. Uh, uh, then the samples go to our laboratory. We uh, we pop the cells and run a DNA test and provide you information both genealogically and anthropologically that hopefully will answer some of your questions. I have uh, just two more items here for you. Uh, one, a cartoon that I absolutely love. It's the woman who says you don't look anything like the long-haired skinny kid I married 25 years ago. I need a DNA sample to make sure it's still you. And... <laughs> And what is so significant about this is not what the cartoon says, but that it was from 1997, 20 years ago, before the Jefferson study, the same year the Kohanim study came out, two years before I figured out that I might be able to do something, you know, with DNA genealogically. And so this, this particular cartoonist, I would say, was way, way ahead of his time. And the last slide is, is kind of intended uh, so that you'll, uh, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll end and we will end and laugh a little bit on a pleasant note. I am not encouraging what this individual is doing in the next slide, but it just goes to show how ubiquitous DNA testing is coming. It is the picture of a man who's holding a sign. Uh, frankly, he's asking for money. But what he's saying is, need money for DNA tests. Girlfriend might be sister. <laughs> and, and so with that, I will thank you very much for your attention. I understand that uh, that Robbie has uh, has set it up so that I will answer the questions. Uh, they can be friendly. They don't have to be uh, so friendly. I have previously in my career had the opportunity to be the catcher in the javelin throw. <laughs> and so I'll now turn this over to Robbie. Okay, uh, Drake here. A two-part question. First, have you published? And then secondly... 
you mentioned that your thinking is that Jewish people may come from the Arab population. Is it possible that really the Arab and Jewish population have a similar have the similar or same ancestor in the you know previous to that right. the Abrahamic line? Okay, so so um, uh, no, I don't publish. Uh, I lecture around the country uh, where invited and when I have time. Uh, and this is this is uh, one of the two lectures I give. It's certainly the most uh, you know political lecture I give generally. I'm just trying to describe the technology. Um, and your second question was, oh yes, 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 got it. Uh, so so we don't know first. Uh, we don't know whether the chicken or the egg came first. We just know that there's a chicken and an egg. So at one time there was. There was a population, and as time moved on and as those people filled up and spread out through the Arabian Peninsula and also the northern part of the Fertile Crescent, uh, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, uh, there were populations that were prior to the time uh, of our recognition of God. Uh, Jews recognized uh, a higher being first, uh, at which point there were the Jewish populations and then there were the non-Jewish populations in the Middle East. Let me be very clear. The Arabs are my cousins. They are my 100th cousins. They are not my second cousins. I know my second cousins. I know my third cousins. The Arabs are undoubtedly my second cousins and I am undoubtedly their second, uh, their hundredth cousins. It's a recognition of that fact that needs to happen. The fact is already there. Okay. By the way, before we get to Will's, Will's question, if you get a chance, I want you to look at Bennett's tie. Because he has a, it's a DNA chain, but he's got cuneiform, he's got proto-Hebrew, he's got um, an, another form of, well, or maybe Aramaic, and then, I'm, I'm, and then modern Hebrew. I mean, you know, regu regular block script that we're used to. So for those of you who've got, you know, some knowledge of Hebrew in your background and understanding, you can take a look at that. Okay. Will's question. Uh, have you been able to uh, distinguish within, um, within the Jewish uh, population anything about the possibility of the 12 tribes? Okay. So... Okay, so y'all heard the question. Uh, I've been asked this question a lot. A lot of us would like to, um, you know, would like to have some clarity on that. Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, let's presume that that um, that the biblical story of the loss of the ten tribes in the north is accurate, and that there was no one left, and no one was able to escape and join the. Uh, the tribes in the south. Uh, that would leave us with a couple of tribes uh, left plus the Levites who were spread out among all the tribes. Uh, that's about as good as we can do. Uh, there are stories that there are some Jewish populations or there were some Jewish populations who were in Syria and eastern Turkey, a likely destination place for the 10 tribes and we've tested a few of those people not enough for it to be statistically significant but remember if we had 
a dozen tribes, and they were all the sons of their father, then each of those men who created the tribe, whether they are from different mothers or not, would have had the same Y chromosome, which means they should all be the same. In fact, what we're seeing is a fair amount of genetic diversity, which means that there were, were people who joined uh, you know, the Hebrews uh, 3,028, 26, 22, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, uh, and, and really the rest is, is history. I would hope that as we move from a time of genetic survey to genetic census, and we don't test just one out of a thousand, but we test all out of a thousand, that we're able to clearly answer questions like that. Uh, currently what's being done is people are working on uh, rabbinic um, rabbinic lines, famous rabbinic lines, and they're studying those. And those take us back to maybe the 13 or 1400s. It's very, very hard to get back further than that. But if and as and, and when the technology affords itself for us to, you know, confidently go back that far, uh, you know, then we'll certainly be be trying. But my guess is that that's not going to happen. I'm not sure that I know exactly how to ask this question, but I had a fellow tell me one time that um, the Jews can no longer be traceable because they've intermarried so much, and God can't fulfill his promises because there's no true Jew. Right. So, so this should have allayed that incorrect statement. Okay. Okay? It is actually very, very clear. Um that when when I find, okay, so if that was true, when I tested a, a random Jewish guy today, he, you know, he, he wouldn't be matching other Jews. But in fact, what happens is uh, when I do test a Jewish man today, he matches other Jews of his same ancestry. And then when we go out a little bit further, he'll match other Jews from other populations, not Ashkenazi populations. And in fact, what we have found through both the Kohanim study of 1998, 97, 98, and then revised in 2004, as well as the other Jewish population studies, uh, Jews have been, Jewish men have been remarkably um, capable of passing on not only you know their seed from father to son, but passing the religion down in the same way. Now, the interesting point is that it's not so true on the mother's side. Uh, even though we say that Judaism is a religion that follows the line of the mother, what is typical is that Jewish businessmen or traders in antiquity would leave Judea. They would go, whether it was North Africa, Carthage, Spain, Rome, they would ultimately um, be men who were out traveling, who would marry local women, convert those women to the Jewish religion, and the rest was history. There was no chief rabbinate to tell them what they were doing wrong, at which point, uh, you know, they, they, they genuinely converted the, uh, the girl, most likely pagan, uh, you know, to the Jewish religion, and that was it. And so hopefully the fact that you can see that the uh, Y chromosome of, of Jewish populations 
falls into a couple of branches of the tree, which are typical of the Middle East and doesn't have, you know, influence from, you know, from other branches, uh, or at least not in any significant numbers, even though the Jews were living in areas for 2,000 years where J and E and G were not common. They were living in places where I was common or where a different variety of the R branch was common. But you're not finding a lot of um, you're not finding a lot of that on the male side. On the female side, uh, it's it's harder to tell. Okay, my, my question, this is, I got two questions. One is related to the DNA of the Ethiopian Jews, the Indian Jews, the Chinese Jews that we hear about, and those populations that have come back. In fact, uh, there was a reference, I don't know if you saw it, but on a, the Christian television network here, they've got um, a series on the importance of why Israel is important that they started about three weeks ago, and they're telling stories of different people. And in the first episode, one of the people uh, was a, uh, a Chinese lady whose tradition was that they were Jewish, and she now lives in Israel. And she's, you know, all of that. So, so that's one question. The other question let, is... Let me, let me okay. answer that one before, because that was kind of a long one. Or, or my answer could be kind of a long one. Um, so... There have been studies done on the Ethiopian Jewish community, and uh, we have not found that the Y chromosome of Ethiopian men is typical of the chart that I showed you. In fact, the Y chromosome of Ethiopian men is, in fact, much more typical of Africa than it is from the Middle East, which means those people are probably the descendants of converts at some time in the past. You know, of course, the biblical story says that that the that the Queen of Sheba came with her handmaidens, who ended up some of them with you know with the king's soldiers. So the Y chromosome should be found among that population, but it is not, which is why I would believe that uh, that those people are likely the descendants. Uh, you know, of converts. The Mayampur Jews from India, um, who someone felt were descendants of the tribe of Manasseh, their Y chromosome and their female DNA is entirely Asian, which means the answer, you know, are they from the Levant? No, they might be coming back to the Levant today, but they're not from the Levant. Uh, the Chinese Jews, we have been able to test four Chinese Jews from Kaifeng. Kaifeng was the, uh, was the Ming Dynasty uh, site of imperial power in China in the uh, you know, 12, 13, 14, 1500s. Uh, of those four people we have tested, uh, one of them on his Y chromosome was Chinese, uh, one, uh, two of them were R, which is found in Europe, but it's also found in the Middle East, as, as I pointed out earlier. Those people, and, and R is not found in, in China, at least not this variety of R. So those people likely are the descendants 
of Jews who went either from, if you believe one story, Syria and the other story, Iran, into China in the, uh, you know, about about 900 years ago. You asked about, did you ask about another population, Robbie, or was... No, that, that, that was just those. Okay. The other question was, when is the chief rabbinate going uh, to orient their, their, uh, their definition of who's a Jew with DNA instead of... And, and the Bible, actually, because in the Old Testament... The genealogies are male, with only one or two exceptions. So I, I, don't, I don't understand why they go with the woman as opposed to the man. Yeah, it, be, it, because of both both of these issues, Old Testament tradition as well as uh, genetics, seems to indicate that they're wrong. Right. So it seems there seems to be a, a little argument as to when Judaism actually flipped from a male-dominated religion to a religion that one that the religion followed the line of the mother but all alternately between a hundred years before the birth of jesus and a hundred years after the birth of jesus sometime in that time frame uh jews started following the line of the mother uh, i think that any population which is trying to keep its its organization intact uh that has lost its sovereignty or lost its homeland is under a situation where you, um, you know, where where you know where rape cannot be something that is you know not considered for the population. And I think that the Jewish religion probably flipped because we always know who the mother is and we don't always know who the father is. Um, and as far as the chief rabbinate. Um, look, I, I'll only say this: maybe God knows, but but none of us mere mortals do. And another thing is, certainly the the folks at the chief rabbinate do not want me to test them, especially on their mother's side, because they might find that they're the descendants of a European woman, not a Semitic woman, who converted to Judaism only two thousand years ago when she married a Judean who had been cast away from Judea. Okay, I, I, I have, uh, I'll give it to Dan in just a minute, but one, one question I've occurred to me and, and a couple of other people. Have you tested Jerry's DNA? Because our next speaker is Jerry Greenspan. Are you guys... I, I know, I'm going to let you. Okay. I, I, I don't, I will tell you, I don't know that, that Jerry has been tested, but Jerry will perhaps uh, share his story on why he doesn't think that, that I'm lucky enough to be related to him uh, <laughs> later. Now, I, I will say I, I did because of, in the interest of time and because I wanted to keep this on a very serious scholarly note, I didn't show the picture of Alan Greenspan and I standing together because a lot of people say, are you related to Alan Greenspan? And, of course, I have, ever since grad school, uh, been asked, are you related to Alan Greenspan? And uh, and I never knew the answer, and so I happened to be at an event not a couple of years ago. Alan Greenspan was going to be there, and so I brought with me a DNA test kit <laughs> just in case. And so when he came in, um, I was introduced to him, and he immediately said, oh, maybe we're related. And so and so we, we, we had our dinner and the and, and he spoke and other people 
spoke, and then before it ended, he gets up to leave, and so my wife notices, and she gives me one of the, you know one of these things, and so I took the kit and I followed him, and I said, Doctor Greenspan, how would you you know how would you like to do a DNA test? We'll be able to see if we're related, and he said, What does it matter? And I said, Doctor Greenspan, y- you can find out you're related to me. <laughs> well. That 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 didn't go over so well. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it wasn't like it was a pork chop at a bar mitzvah, but it, it it did not go over so well. He didn't think much of it, and so I I will say that that if we are related, that his side of the family didn't get the personality gene. Okay. Robbie, do we have time for any more questions? One, one more question okay. here from Dan. All right, on a bit of a more practical level, on TV you see a lot of companies, or at least two companies, major companies advertising to test the DNA. I know two sisters who decided to test this by sending one DNA sample off to one and one to another. Came back with similar but not exactly the same results. Right. Uh, What do you think of these companies that are doing this? And then I kind of like to know, how does a person get their DNA tested by you, which I presume, and I'm assuming, and I think I understand, is much more reputable. So, yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> so so let, let me just say this. Remember I told you there were three different types of DNA testing? Yes. There was the Y chromosome, which we have just looked at for this lecture. Okay. There's the mitochondria, which looks at the mother's, mother's, mother's line. Then there's this test, which looks at the DNA that recombines. Sometime after uh, we made the decision that we didn't want to sell our little privately held uh, DNA testing company to 23andMe, which was one of those companies, or to Ancestry.com, which was the other company, Ancestry, uh, with its vast uh, you know, VC treasure trove of dollars, uh, said, okay, well, we're just going to spend whatever it takes to drive those guys out of business. And so they've started DNA testing. I believe that their DNA testing is accurate. I believe that all of them are reputable, all three of us are reputable and accurate. But why are, the, why are there some differences in the ethnic percentage prediction? That's because we all compare your DNA against reference populations. I can't go to the grocery store and buy reference populations. What I have to do is I have to reach out to populations. So maybe I've tested 100 people in Finland, and I'll consider that a reference population for Finland. Maybe I'll do the same thing, but maybe my French population is a little bit more Alsace-Lorraine than it is Bordeaux. For that reason, the DNA in Alsace is kind of French and German and French and German, depending upon the century. So it's more of a mixture, whereas in other parts of France, it may be more homogenous. And so as we have different underlying populations to compare your DNA against, you'll everyone will get a slightly nuanced or slightly different um, list of results of percentage results from one company versus the other company. What should be identical is the amount of shared DNA. If those two sisters were in my database and they were in Ancestry's database, we should both show that they have 
blocks of DNA that's the same size, and that's what we use for genealogical purposes. So in genealogical purposes, I think all of us are spot on. I think that for anthropological purposes or percentage ethnicity testing, all of our results are going to be absolutely influenced by the quality and the breadth of our underlying uh, population. And to answer your last question before the fellow grabs the cane and, and yanks me off the stage, is if anyone is interested in this, and this is 100% not, not a commercial advertisement, Okay, but if you want to know more about our company, since we've already talked about you know my two competitors, you can go to www.familytreedna.com, or if you want to overwhelm my email box, you're welcome to send an email to me, bcg at familytreedna.com, and ask any question you want. And you know I might answer it myself, and if I'm overwhelmed, I'll send it to one of our dozen. Uh, people who do nothing but answer phone calls and emails all day. And with that, I want to thank you for your attention today. It's been my pleasure to address you. Bennett, great. Thank you very much.